Section 31 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 2. Edited by Charles F. Horn. Rossiter Johnson and John Rudd Cleopatra's Conquest of Caesar and Antony B.C. 51-30 by John P. Mahaffey It is not our duty to follow the various complications of war and diplomacy, accompanied by the marriage with the serious and gentle Octavia, whereby the brilliant but dissolute Antony was weaned, as it were, from his follies, and persuaded to live a life of public activity. Whether the wily Octavian did not foresee the result, whether he did not even sacrifice his sister to accumulate odium against his dangerous rival, is not for us to determine. But when it was arranged, in B.C. 36, that Antony should lead an expedition against the Parthians, any man of ordinary sense must have known that he would come within the reach of the eastern siren, and was sure to be again attracted by her fatal voice. It is hard to account for her strange patience during these four years. She had borne twins to Antony, probably after the meeting in Cilicia, though she still maintained the claims of her eldest son, Caesarion, to be the divine Julius's only direct heir, we do not hear of her sending requests to Antony to support him, or that any agents were working in her interests at Rome. She was too subtle a woman to solicit his return to Alexandria. There are mistaken insinuations that she thought the chances of Sextus Pompey, with his naval supremacy, better than those of Antony, but these stories refer to her brother Cineus, who visited Egypt before Pharsalia. It is probably to this pause in her life as we know it that we may refer her activity in repairing and enlarging the national temples. The splendid edifice at Dendera, at present among the most perfect of Egyptian temples, bears no older names than those of Cleopatra and her son Caesarion, and their portraits represent the latter as a growing lad, his mother as an essentially Egyptian figure, conventionally drawn according to the rules which had determined the figures of gods and kings for fifteen hundred years. Under these circumstances it is idle to speak of this well-known relief picture, as a portrait of the queen. It is no more so than the granite statues in the Vatican are portraits of Philadelphus and Arsinoe. The artist had probably never seen the queen, and, if he had, it would not have produced the slightest alteration in his drawing. Plutarch expressly says that it was not in peerless beauty that her fascination lay, but in the combination of more than average beauty with many other personal attractions. 
the Egyptian portrait is likely to confirm in the spectator's mind the impression derived from Shakespeare's play that Cleopatra was a swarthy Egyptian in strong contrast to the fair Roman ladies, and suggesting a wide difference of race. She was no more an Egyptian than she was an Indian, but a pure Macedonian, of a race akin to, and perhaps fairer than, the Greeks. No sooner had Antony reached Syria than the fell influence of the Egyptian queen revived. In the words of Plutarch, But the mischief that thus long had lain still, the passion for Cleopatra, which better thoughts had seemed to have lulled and charmed into oblivion, upon his approach to Syria, gathered strength again, and broke out into a flame. And, in fine, like Plato's restive and rebellious horse of the human soul, flinging off all good and wholesome counsel, and breaking fairly loose, he sent Fonteus Capito to bring Cleopatra into Syria, to whom at her arrival he made no small or trifling present, Phoenicia, Col Syria, Cyprus, great part of Cilicia, that side of Judea which produces balm, that part of Arabia where the Nabatheans extend to the outer sea, profuse gifts which much displeased the Romans. For although he had invested several private persons with great governments and kingdoms, and bereaved many kings of theirs, as Antigonus of Judea, whose head he caused to be struck off, the first example of that punishment being inflicted on a king, yet nothing stung the Romans like the shame of these honors paid to Cleopatra. Their dissatisfaction was augmented also by his acknowledging as his own the twin children he had by her, giving them the names of Alexander and Cleopatra, and adding as their surnames the titles of Sun and Moon. After much dallying, the triumvir really started for the wild east, whether it is not our business to follow him. Cleopatra he sent home to Egypt to await his victorious return, and it was on this occasion that she came in state to Jerusalem to visit Herod the Great, probably the most brilliant scene of the kind which had taken place since the Queen of Sheba came to learn the wisdom of Solomon. But it was a very different wisdom that Herod professed, and in which he was verily a high authority. Nor was the subtle daughter of the Ptolemies a docile pupil, but a practiced expert in the same arts of cruelty and cunning, wherewith both pursued their several courses of ambition and sought to wheedle from their Roman masters cities and provinces. The reunion of Antony and Cleopatra must have greatly alarmed Herod, whose plans were directly thwarted by the freaks of Antony, and he must have been preparing at the time to make his case with Octavian, and seek from his favor protection against the new caprices of the then Lord of the East. The scene at Herod's palace must have been inimitable. The display of counter-fascinations between these two tigers, 
their voluptuous natures mutually attracted, their hatred giving to each that deep interest in the other, which so often turns to mutual passion while it incites to conquest. The grace and finish of their manners, concealing a ruthless ferocity, the splendor of their appointments, what more dramatic picture can we imagine in history? We hear that she actually attempted to seduce Herod, but failed, owing to his deep devotion to his wife Mariamne. The prosaic Josephus adds that Herod consulted his counsel whether he should not put her to death for this attempt upon his virtue. He was dissuaded by them on the ground that Antony would listen to no arguments, not even from the most persuasive of the world's princes, and would take awful vengeance when he heard of her death. So she was escorted with great gifts and politenesses back to Egypt. Such, then, was the character of this notorious queen. But her violation of temples and even of ancient tombs for the sake of treasure must have been a far more public and odious exhibition of that want of respect for the sentiment of others which is the essence of bad manners. As is well known, the first campaign of Antony against Armenians and Parthians was a signal failure, and it was only with great difficulty that he escaped the fate of Crassus. But Cleopatra was ready to meet him in Syria with provisions and clothes for his distressed and ragged battalions, and he returned with her to spend the winter, B.C. 36-35, to 35, at Alexandria. She thus snatched him again from his noble wife Octavia, who had come from Rome to Athens with succors even greater than Cleopatra had brought. This, at least, is the word of the historians who write in the interests of the Romans, and regard the Queen of Egypt with horror and with fear. The new campaign of Antony, B.C. 34, was apparently more prosperous, but it was only carried far enough to warrant his holding a Roman triumph at Alexandria. Perhaps the only novelty in pomp which the triumvir could exhibit to the Alexandrian populace, while it gave the most poignant offense at Rome. It was apparently now that he made that formal distribution of provinces which Octavian used as his chief casus belli. Nor was the division he made among his sons at Alexandria less unpopular. It seemed a theatrical piece of insolence and contempt of his country for assembling the people in the exercise ground and causing two golden thrones to be placed on a platform of silver, the one for him and the other for Cleopatra, and at their feet lower thrones for their children, he proclaimed Cleopatra queen of Egypt, Cyprus, Libya, and Colesyria, and with her conjointly Caesarian, the reputed son of the former Caesar. His own sons by Cleopatra were to have the style of king of kings. To Alexander he gave Armenia and Medea, with Parthia so soon as it should be overcome. 
to Ptolemy, Phoenicia, Syria, and Cilicia. Alexander was brought out before the people in Median costume, the tiara and upright peak, and Ptolemy in boots and mantle, and Macedonian cap done about with the diadem. For this was the habit of the successors of Alexander, as the other was of the Medes and Armenians. And as soon as they had saluted their parents, the one was received by a guard of Macedonians, the other by one of Armenians. Cleopatra was then, as at other times when she appeared in public, dressed in the habit of the goddess Isis, and gave audience to the people under the name of the new Isis. This over, he gave Prien to his players for a habitation, and set sail for Athens, where fresh sports and play-acting employed him. Cleopatra, jealous of the honors Octavia had received at Athens, for Octavia was much beloved by the Athenians, courted the favor of the people with all sorts of attentions. The Athenians, in requital, having decreed her public honors, deputed several of the citizens to wait upon her at her house, among whom went Antony as one, he being an Athenian citizen, and he it was that made the speech. The speed and extent of Antony's preparations alarmed Caesar, who feared he might be forced to fight the decisive battle that summer, for he wanted many necessaries, and the people grudged very much to pay the taxes, freemen being called upon to pay a fourth part of their incomes, and freed slaves an eighth of their property, so that there were loud outcries against him, and disturbances throughout all Italy. And this is looked upon as one of the greatest of Antony's oversights, that he did not then press the war, for he allowed time at once for Caesar to make his preparations, and for the commotions to pass over, for while people were having their money called for, they were mutinous and violent, but having paid it, they held their peace. Titius and Plancus, men of consular dignity and friends to Antony, having been ill-used by Cleopatra, whom they had most resisted in her design of being present in the war, came over to Caesar, and gave information of the contents of Antony's will, with which they were acquainted. It was deposited in the hands of the Vestal Virgins, who refused to deliver it up, and sent caesar word if he pleased he should come and seize it himself which he did and reading it over to himself he noted those places that were most for his purpose and having summoned the senate read them publicly many were scandalized at the proceeding thinking it out of reason and equity to call a man to account for what was not to be until after his death Caesar specially pressed what Antony said in his will about his burial, for he had ordered that even if he died in the city of Rome, his body, after being carried in state through the forum, should be sent to Cleopatra at Alexandria. Calvisius, a dependent of Caesar's, urged other charges in connection with Cleopatra against Antony,
that he had given her the library of Pergamus, containing two hundred thousand distinct volumes, that, at a great banquet, in the presence of many guests, he had risen up and rubbed her feet, to fulfill some wager or promise, that he had suffered the Ephesians to salute her as their queen, that he had frequently, at the public audience of kings and princes, received amorous messages written in tablets made of onyx and crystal, and read them openly on the tribunal, that when Fernius, a man of great authority and eloquence among the Romans, was pleading, Cleopatra happening to pass by in her litter, Antony started up and left them in the middle of their cause to follow at her side and attend her home. When war was declared, Antony sought to gain the support of the East in the conflict. He made alliance with a Median king who betrothed his daughter to Cleopatra's infant son Alexander, but he made the fatal mistake of allowing Cleopatra to accompany him to Samos, where he gathered his army, and even to Actium, where she led the way in flying from the fight, and so persuading the infatuated Antony to leave his army and join in her disgraceful escape. Historians have regarded this act of Cleopatra as the mere cowardice of a woman who feared to look upon an armed conflict and join in the din of battle but she was surely made of sterner stuff. She had probably computed with the utmost care the chances of the rivals, and had made up her mind that, in spite of Antony's gallantry, his cause was lost. If she fought out the battle with her strong contingent of ships, she would probably fall into Octavian's hands as a prisoner, and would have no choice between suicide or death in the Roman prison, after being exhibited to the mob in Octavian's triumph. There was no chance whatever that she would have been spared, as was her sister Arsinoe after Julius Caesar's triumph, nor would such clemency be less hateful than death. But there was still a chance, if Antony were killed or taken prisoner, that she might negotiate with the victor as Queen of Egypt with her fleet, army, and treasures intact, and who could tell what effect her charms, though now full ripe, might have upon the conqueror. Two great Romans had yielded to her, why not the third, who seemed a smaller man? This view implies that she was already false to Antony, and it may well be asked how such a charge is compatible with the affecting scenes which followed at Alexandria, where her policy seemed defeated by her passion, and she felt her old love too strong even for her heartless ambition. I will say in answer that there is no more frequent anomaly in the psychology of female love than a strong passion coexisting with selfish ambition so that each takes the lead in turn. Nay, even the consciousness of treachery may so intensify the passion as to make a woman embrace with keener transports the lover whom she has betrayed than one whom she has no thought of surrendering. 
There are, moreover, in these tragedies unexpected accidents, which so affect even the hardest nature, that calculations are cast aside, and the old loyalty resumes a temporary sway. Nor must we fail to insist again upon the traditions wherein this last Cleopatra was born and bred. She came from a stock whose women played with love and with life as if they were mere counters. To hesitate whether such a scion of such a house would have delayed to discard Antony and to assume another passion is to show small appreciation of the effects of heredity and of example. Dion tells us that she arrived in Alexandria before the news of her defeat, pretended a victory, and took the occasion of committing many murders, in order to get rid of secret opponents, and also to gather wealth by confiscation of their goods, for both she and Antony, who came along the coast of Libya, seem still to have thought of defending the inaccessible Egypt, and making terms for themselves and their children with the conqueror. But Antony's efforts completely failed. No one would rally to his standard. And, meanwhile, the false queen had begun to send presents to Caesar and encourage him to treat with her. But when he bluntly proposed to her to murder Antony as the price of her reconciliation with himself, and when he even declared by proxy that he was in love with her, he clearly made a rash move in this game of diplomacy, though Dion says he persuaded her of his love, and that, accordingly, she betrayed to him the fortress of Pelusium, the key of the country. Dion also differs from Plutarch in repeatedly ascribing to Octavian great anxiety to secure the treasures which Cleopatra had with her and which she was likely to destroy by fire if driven to despair. The historian may well leave to the biographer, nay, to the poet, the affecting details of the closing scenes of Cleopatra's life. In the fourth and fifth acts of Antony and Cleopatra, Shakespeare has reproduced every detail of Plutarch's narrative, which was drawn from that of her physician Olympos. Her fascinations were not dead, for they swayed Dolabella to play false to his master so far as to warn her of his intentions, and leave her time for her dignified and royal end. But if these Hellenistic queens knew how to die, they knew not how to live. Even the penultimate scene of the tragedy, when she presents an inventory of her treasures to Octavian, and is charged by her steward with dishonesty, shows her in uncivilized violence, striking the man in the face, and bursting into indecent fury, such as an Athenian, still less a Roman matron, would have been ashamed to exhibit. Nor is there any reason to doubt the genuineness of this scene, though we must not be weary of cautioning ourselves against the hostile witnesses who have reported to us her life. They praise nothing in her but her bewitching presence and her majestic death. 
After her repast, Cleopatra sent to Caesar a letter which she had written and sealed, and putting everybody out of the monument but her two women, she shut the doors. Caesar, opening her letter, and finding pathetic prayers and entreaties that she might be buried in the same tomb with Antony, soon guessed what was doing. At first he was going himself in all haste, but, changing his mind, he sent others to see. The thing had been quickly done. The messengers came at full speed, and found the guards apprehensive of nothing. But on opening the doors they saw her stone dead, lying upon a bed of gold, set out in all her royal ornaments. Eras, one of her women, lay dying at her feet, and Charmian, just ready to fall, scarce able to hold up her head, was adjusting her mistress's diadem. And when one that came in said angrily, Was this well done of your lady, Charmian? Perfectly well, she answered, and as became the daughter of so many kings. And as she said this, she fell down dead by the bedside. Even the hostile accounts cannot conceal from us that both in physique and in intellect she was a very remarkable figure, exceptional in her own, exceptional had she been born in any other age. She is a speaking instance of the falsehood of a prevailing belief that the intermarriage of near relations invariably produces a decadence in the human race. The whole dynasty of the Ptolemies contradicts this current theory, and exhibits in the last of the series the most signal exception. Cleopatra the Sixth was descended from many generations of breeding in, of which four exhibit marriages of full brother and sister, and yet she was deficient in no quality, physical or intellectual, which goes to make up a well-bred and well-developed human being. Her morals were indeed those of her ancestors, and as bad as could be, but I am not aware that it is degeneration in this direction which is assumed by the theory in question, except as a consequence of physical decay. Physically, however, Cleopatra was perfect. She was not only beautiful, but prolific, and retained her vigor, and apparently her beauty, to the time of her death, when she was nearly forty years old. End of section 31